Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. For the past four weeks, we have been building up to this. We've been unwrapping the gift of of Jesus and discovering God's steadfast love that produces in us shouts of joy that gives us the peace that passes all understanding and restores us to patience for the celebration of the birth of a newborn king and his ultimate coming again to make the world right once and for all. This past week, Lois and I had the opportunity to take in the holiday festivities at SeaWorld. The skaters were breathtaking with their choreographed renditions of Christmas favorites. The dolphins were leaping for joy, the orcas were doing backflips, and the fireworks put an exclamation point on the evening. Standing on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea at a place called Caesarea Maritime in January 2016, there were record-breaking winds gusting to 50 miles per hour, and the waves crashing thundered and roared and made a fitting end to a week of contemplating this strange little strip of real estate called Israel which just happened to be the crossroads of the ancient world. A place where a no-name couple from a no-place little village journeyed a distance of 90 miles on foot to pay their taxes, of all things, in Bethlehem. Those are the images that formed in my mind as I read Psalm 96 and prepared for this evening, SeaWorld and the place where Jesus was born. In a little book by my favorite preacher and now author entitled The Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ, Tim Keller observes that, quote, Christmas is the only Christian holy day that is also a major secular holiday, arguably our culture's biggest And then he goes on to say that try as the world might to disconnect the birth of Jesus from Christmas, it keeps intruding, uninvited, mostly in the much-loved and favorite Christmas carols that so many know by heart. If you were here last Sunday, you heard me at the close of my sermon where we were talking about being restored to this right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you all to go all in on your singing tonight and tomorrow. And then Psalm 96 jumped up and bit me. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Not once, not twice, but three times. Sing. 
And I need you to notice that it's not a suggestion or even an invitation. Grammatically, it is an imperative, a command from God. Sing. Now, why would God command such a thing? Well, to be honest, I don't really know why God would do that. I'm not totally sure. But there it is. And it shows up many other places in the Bible. A command from God to sing. Now maybe somewhere in the audience this evening there is someone with a PhD in music theory who could explain to us why setting things to music and singing them is an undeniably powerful way to embed ideas not just in your head but in your heart. So here's what I'd like to try. I would like for you all to help me preach this sermon by re-singing the opening hymn off this evening is going to lead us into each verse and then I want him to drop out and I want you all to sing with some heart and with some gusto and I want you to listen to each other fill this room with your song and to listen to the words now I don't I don't want to incite violence. <laughs> but if there is a person sitting next to you who isn't singing, can you gently, gently nudge them? Gentlemen, I'm speaking to you. <laughs> Let's try it. Let's sing. Eric? newborn king is coming and this psalm psalm 96 lays out this king's glory and then this king's story and then wraps it all up with a declaration that this king is for me and for you Let's take a look. The king's glory, the king's story, and the king who is for me and for you. But glory is one of those religious words that we use a lot. But it doesn't always 
mean much. And in fact, when I ask people, what do you think of when you hear the word glory? Most people say something about a bright, overpowering light like the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night when an angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And that's part of it, to be sure. But when the word glory is used to refer to God, it means God's supreme importance. In fact, in the original language of the Old Testament, the word glory literally translates as heavy, weightiness. Maybe the best way to think of it is in contrast to everything else that compared it to God, everything else is weightless. It's like fluff. It's like a, a wisp of smoke. Declaring God's glory is declaring that God is the number one most important, most significant reality in the universe. That he is the one and only triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator and the sustainer of all that exists and outside of whom nothing exists. Now we try to capture these things by using human language. Anthropomorphisms, we call them. Which is simply assigning human characteristics to try and comprehend the incomprehensible. And so we say things like, God is king over all. He is the absolute monarch. Beside him, there is no other. The question, of course, is whether or not that is true in your life and in mine. Is your life built on the rock-solid, immovable glory, significance, importance of God, or are you building on fluff, on a wisp of smoke? Your beauty, your intelligence, your talents, your health, even your family, unfortunately, your relationships, your career, everything here is weightless in comparison. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's all passing away. It is all going to pass away. And if you make anything more important than God, then you are investing in things that are not actually glorious. And therefore, you wind up giving your heart, giving your life to things that are eventually going to be lost. The story of Christmas is that the king has come to make his glory, make his importance, make his significance real to you and to me tonight. Let's sing.
this is the king's story. Jesus, the son, the second person of the triune God, was born as an infant into the world and into our lives to reveal God's glory. But there is a problem. Because when this king arrives, he finds someone else sitting on his throne, claiming his right to rule. You can see it in the Luke 2 account that was read a few moments ago when Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, decreed that all of the world should be registered. He actually claimed that he was God and he commanded his subjects to worship him. In Matthew's account, it is King Herod in Jerusalem who, when the wise men came and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod was deeply troubled in all of Jerusalem with him, and he swiftly sent his soldiers to dispatch all of the baby boys, two years old and under, in Bethlehem. Today, it's presidents and prime ministers and legislatures and insurgents and militia all vying for power. But it is not just an international political problem, is it? It is a personal problem, too. Because we would all like to imagine ourselves to be the rulers of our own life, and we attempt to, to maneuver, maneuver every way possible in order to maintain our control. And lo and behold, when seven and a half billion people on one planet are all trying to be their own king, you get the mess that we so often find ourselves in in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. And in our country. But this king's story, this king's story is different from all of the other kings. Because this king, when he comes the first time, lays down his glory and humbles himself. Even to the point of a humiliating death on the cross. And in so doing, he uses the very power of evil itself against itself. To destroy sin and death and the power of the devil and get this when Jesus died on the cross the earth shook it trembled and the and the soldiers standing watch over Jesus exclaimed surely this man was the son of God and a Roman centurion worshiped Jesus and here's the fact of the matter everybody worships something. Human beings are instinctively and irrepressibly religious. Even if they reject the whole idea of God and of religion itself because you have to build your life on something. Everyone trusts in something to give their life ultimate meaning. And this king's story this evening is begging you again to climb down off of the throne of your life and to worship Jesus, to build your life on him, to discover your true and your ultimate purpose is in the glory of God, which is revealed at the cross and in his resurrection. To worship is to bow down. 
To worship is to surrender yourself to Jesus. To worship is to let his love, his forgiveness, his truth, his grace rule in your heart and in your mind. To worship is to say the simple words, I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus the King, who comes to rescue you and me from the disastrous freedom of trying to be our own king and to experience instead the perfect freedom of God's glory as the foundation of our lives. The Christmas story is the story of the king who suffered and died and rose again to save us and his whole creation. The sea and all that fills it, the fields and everything in them, the trees and the forest joining in the chorus, singing for joy. You've seen his glory, his importance, his ultimate significance. You've heard his story again, and it has been declared. Jesus is the king for me and for you. And this king Jesus has promised that he will come again, not humbly, but in full glory to judge the living and the dead. And he will once and for all put the world right. And then the whole creation will bow down and worship him and sing. Thank you. Amen. Now the peace that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in this true faith unto life everlasting. Amen.